So basically, I figure we would do like a little bit of follow up, you know, basically catching up. Mm-hmm. It's been over two months. It has been. <laughs> because I have a two month old now. <laughs> So uh, since we last chatted, you had a baby. I did. I had another little boy. I have two little boys now. Um, He was born on October 19th. He's enormous. Um, well, he wasn't born enormous, but the he has become enormous. The <laughs> lactation nurses called him a little piggy. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> his arrival has caused my two-year-old to start asserting his independence in a lot of different ways. Interesting. Yeah. In fact, one that affects my ability to read, uh-huh. um, which is related to the theme of this podcast. Basically, if I try to read my book now, like when Paw Patrol's on or something, if he's otherwise occupied, I used to be able to read a few pages. Mm -hmm. But now he takes the book from me (laughs) and he says, you can't read that. It's French. (laughs) Then he says, come on, ça va. (laughs) And he takes the book and he won't give me the book back. (laughs) Um, I have to ask, is he in a French immersion like... No, he's not. We okay. we do get French library books sometimes that my husband reads to him. And I can only assume that maybe one of the grandmothers refused to read the French book or something. But Because he, he, he now thinks French means something you can't read. Although he does know Kamatsava is French, apparently. But I'm not allowed to read anymore. It's so funny because he'll let me do, like, other things. Like, I can write in my diary. I can, you know, browse my phone. He doesn't mm-hmm. mind any of that. But he, he's really opposed to me reading now, even if he's, like, watching TV, which is a big treat, but I'd love to do. I don't know. That's so odd. It's gotten really hard to read. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that uh, when you have a two-year-old and a infant, uh, any, any reading you get done is kind of uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, the first two weeks, mm-hmm. I read, like, two books. So that was pretty exciting. And I was like, okay, I can totally do this. But I've read about half a book since. Oh, oh my God. Because it's gotten more difficult. <laughs> you still have me beat. <laughs> I, I have read two books since we last chatted. And I do not have the very, very ironclad, excellent excuse you have. <laughs> I just have my own kind of broken brain. <laughs> I'm always busy, and I get nothing done. <laughs> <laughs> I am rarely busy, and I still don't get very much done. <laughs> Uh, well, that's not true. That's not true. I have my other podcast, and I have my clients, and yeah, you know, like, you leave the house sometimes. I do. I leave the house more frequently than my partner. So. I have left the house once in the last week. Oh. Well, it is fair enough. December in Newfoundland. It was to go to the doctor. <laughs> Uh, I just realized we didn't introduce the show. So oh. this is Dare Reader, which is Hello. a podcast about friendship and reading. Hi. <laughs> My name is Michael. My name is Emily. Yeah. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome to our show, where we basically catch up. We're two old friends, and uh, we've known each other for ages. And we basically are doing this show partly as an excuse to have a chance to have a chat once a month. <laughs> yeah, and partly to inspire us to read something in that month <laughs> yeah because we used we used to both be very very prodigious readers and i feel i have fallen farther than you <laughs> well i fell further at different times like mm. you you've had a more continuous 
time in academia reading. Yes. Whereas I've been more up and down over the years. Right now I'm reading more than you, but that fluctuates. Yes. I mean, I, I was really Icarus. I, I basically went into a PhD program in literature and eventually my waxen wings melted and plummeted into the sea. So, <laughs> so yes, how are you? <laughs> I'm okay. I've been, I've been training clients at the gym. I've been um, doing my other podcast. This is your mixtape. I've been living a happy life and I have read nice. two books. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, which is not great. <laughs> but it's not bad. I'm coming home for Christmas soon, so I'll see you in person in not too much longer. You can meet the piggy baby. I'm looking forward to it. I should say, uh, also following up from our previous episode... I read my first book on my phone, and I said some things that are factually wrong about reading books on phones. Oh, dear. <laughs> Which the episode hasn't gone live to the public yet, so I don't know if I'm going to get emails and tweets about it. That would be lovely, because that indicates people are listening. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can do things like underline passages and bookmark pages and whatnot on a uh, phone version of a book. I just did not know how. <laughs> yeah, well, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, while we're talking about things we noticed and listened to our last one, um, I think I was more disparaging of the canon than I really meant to be. Because while the canon is by no means inclusive enough, the books in it are not bad. <laughs> yes. I don't mean to disparage the books themselves, mm -hmm. just the... Uh, selection process i guess yeah i i think that there's space to say that um bleak house is a great novel and also there should be more novels by people who aren't white men <laughs> exactly <laughs> what book do you have well i kind of have two i want to compare and contrast um i did read the penelope Ed at your suggestion and i hated it <laughs> oh dear <laughs> Which was surprising because I love Greek myths and I love Margaret Atwood usually, um, but I really hated this one a lot. Well, I can't wait to hear why. <laughs> well, I, I think it's partly because I've another book I read a few months ago, a recent bestseller, uh, Circe by Madeline Miller. And Circe is similar in a way in that it takes, it, it's a modern writer uh, exploring one of the women on the peripheries of Odysseus' story. Mm -hmm. um, and that book is awesome. And that book is really great. And I think the Penelope Ed, more than anything, represents a missed opportunity. Penel Penelope, as Margaret Atwood envisions her, there's nothing new in her story that we don't already have. Um, she references in her author's note a book called The Greek, Greek Myths, The Greek Myths by Robert Graves, which I had as a child. I don't know if it was meant for children, but it was, or just very sanitized for Christians, I guess. But it, uh, I loved it, and it's a, co a collection of it's sort of a retail, modern retelling of the myths for students, I think. And yeah, Margaret Atwood didn't really add anything to her story. She also has no arc in the book. Um, it, it's ostensibly Penelope's ghost now, reflecting back over four thousand years of history. But she's no different now than she is at fifteen. She doesn't learn anything. She doesn't grow. The only thing in this <clears throat> telling that's, I guess, emphasized in a different way is the plight of the maids. Odysseus uh, hangs 12 of her maids, and she's, you know, pissed about that. But even in the new, the Penelope Ed, there's no, the maids don't even have names or personalities or characters. There's no real indication of Penelope's relationship to them other than that they are her maids. Um, so I guess it just really 
showed a missed opportunity to explore those peripheral characters. Also, the relationship between Helen and Penelope is very disappointed. Um, Helen of Troy, even though she's actually of Sparta, um, and Penelope were first cousins and project like kind of a frenemy situation. There's mutual jealousy, and but they are also pretty much the only women in each other's lives of similar age. But it's very superficial in Atwood's telling. There's no deeper exploration of the relationship between them, except Helen is pretty and super and vain and shallow, and Penelope is smart and kind of jealous. So I guess I just wanted a lot more from Margaret Atwood. It's less than 200 pages. Yeah, I was wondering if if it was longer, if that was satisfying, because we know she's capable of that. Like, Cat's Eye is like the perfect portrait of that depth Exactly. It's it's almost like Margaret Atwood phoning it in, and you know, it's it's a great idea that she just didn't really realize. I guess. Um, I mean, I know I'm sitting here criticizing Margaret Atwood as a writer, which is a little crazy. <laughs> but I was reading this, and it's like, what are you at? You know, if you're going to do this, do it better. <laughs> well, you were saying that you have read someone who did do it better recently. Exactly, Madeline Miller. Um, she's famous for her first novel, or previous novel anyway, uh, The Song of Achilles, which came out a few years ago and uh, made explicit, which was implicit in the text, which was the homosexual relationship between Achilles and Patroclus. Now, I didn't read that one myself, although I heard a lot of great things about it. And this one came out, so I was like, okay, I'll pick up this one. And this one kind of does everything I wanted um, the Penelope had to do. It explores Circe's childhood. What is it like when you're the daughter of a Titan in a, you know, Olympian world? How did she come to be imprisoned on an island? Why, like, how does it feel to be imprisoned as an immortal being? It gave a new relationship between her siblings. There was shading in of her experience with Prometheus, which I'm not even sure if that was in original myth or not. I don't think it was. I could stand to be corrected. But she was inspired by Prometheus in a lot of what she did. And then she had a real relationship with Odysseus and a real relationship with her child. And she grew and learned and changed. And... There was none of that in the Penelope yet, which was, as I said, disappointing. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. I'm 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 disappointed that I gave a bad recommendation, but it sounds like the idea of it was something that you was appealing to you. It's just the execution kind of flopped. Yeah, I mean, if I'd read that before I'd read Madeline Miller's take, or maybe just in a different frame of mind, I expected a lot from it, I guess, mm-hmm. and it did not deliver. If I just thought, like, oh, this is just a a retread of the same Penelope story, I'd be like, you know, it's good enough. It's been a long time since I read it, so my memory of it's kind of fuzzy. But I can remember it was taught in a class I was TAing, which was a first-year course in narrative. So it was like a first-year English course. And we were doing, I'm I'm not even joking, Middlemark. (laughs) I guess if you're doing middle march, everything else has to be short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we did a, cl- a number of quite uh, a very short, short stories. Um, um, a very short Marquez, I want to call it a novella even. It's um, Chronicle of a Death Foretold, right, um, which was great as well. And uh, the Penelope ad, which is also a very breezy, fast read. Because, yeah, if you're asking a bunch of 18 and 19-year-olds to read middle march over the course of a semester, yeah. everything else has to be light. <laughs> well, that might be another factor, too, because I think the Penelope ad 
by a lot of people could be read in a couple of hours, but with the new baby, it took me a few weeks. So I think Fair that gave me more time to think about it as I was reading and think about what I was not getting from it. Uh, well, for me, definitely, I remember it being sort of a breezy, entertaining thing. Like it, it was fairly light, and like I, it definitely didn't have the sort of heft and scope of Margaret Atwood's greatest works, <laughs> which are like you know Cat's Eye and Alias Grace, which are very detailed and psychologically deep novels. I feel oh, <laughs> like, yeah, like the Penelope ad I thought was sort of an easy, breezy, fun sort of read that you could knock off in an afternoon. So I, I guess I can see how having it dragged out over a few weeks when you're reading a little snip- snippets here and there <laughs> that, that would overstay its welcome perhaps yeah and it like because it was margaret atwood and i know she can write women that way i guess i was expecting that i wanted the penelope i'd always dreamed of you know what i mean yeah yeah our mutual friend micah and i had a really interesting conversation one time about women on the peripheries of great stories and uh i'll, I'll talk about that a little here if it's not totally relevant because we were talking about star wars and uh in the original trilogy there's only ever one mention of the mother of luke and leia Mm -hmm. luke asks leia if she remembers her mother leia says that she does and that she was very beautiful and very sad and that's all we get and we know that she had to by definition have been a fairly extraordinary person she was married to the great Jedi, She, you know, who became Darth Vader. And Mike and I both, as separately as children, we didn't know each other back then, extrapolated a character of her mm-hmm. based on that. <clears throat> we knew that Leia remembered her and Luke didn't, so we both kind of assumed that she had lived with Leia much longer. You know, children don't remember anything, usually till they're three or four. We also imagined that maybe she'd had some last standoff with Darth Vader. We also thought maybe she started the resistance. We, we, we imagined a lot of things for her, this great hero without even a name. And then we got Padme Amidala and we're both bitterly disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, you talk about a failure of an opportunity. Uh, yeah. And there's a, there's a few characters like that in a lot of great stories, characters on the margins. I'm thinking mostly of female characters, but I bet this falls for a lot of other ones who, who because of their place in the plot, have to be extraordinary in of themselves because of what they're doing or where they are. But we never get their stories. To keep it in sci-fi, Spock's mother is another one. You know, she a human woman who married a Vulcan back when there was very little intermarriage between species. And she wasn't a diplomat or a scientist. She was a school teacher. Like, who was she? How did that happen? Mm-hmm. And of course we get her and she's nothing. <laughs> but she should be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting because um, those are – now I'm thinking about fan fiction and how like that is that is what fan fiction in part is, is these sort of – not gaps, but sort of empty spaces, I guess, which is, I guess, another word for a gap. <laughs> but, you know, like in the original Star Wars trilogy um, – Luke and Leia had to have a mother. There's one mention of her, but like you extrapolated from that, like she had to have been an extraordinary, interesting, powerful, like uh, fascinating kind of person. And you want to know more about it. Exactly. We did. <laughs> and, uh, there, and there's a lot like that. And Penelope is one of those characters. You get more of her than you usually do for uh, women in Greek stories, for sure. She's also, I think, one of the only women, mortal women, 
in Greek myth who's described as being smart. Yeah, you don't get that. You know, she's the cousin of the most beautiful woman in the world. She's married to the smartest man in the world. She's 20 years without her husband. She comes up with this amazing trick to keep this horde of lusty, violent men at bay. There's more going on there than we get. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to. This is someone I want to spend some time with in a literary way. I'm trying to remember the Penelope end. And <laughs> I remember it, like kind of enjoying how it was a little bit gossipy and sort of celebrity-ish. Yeah, like, that was neat. I liked it. I did like how she kind of posited them as the celebrities of the Greek world. Yeah. I think that was definitely true. But yeah, it did kind of read like a magazine article a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is sort of Margaret Atwood's fan fiction. It, it's another missed opportunity. I, I feel like she came with the idea and told her publisher and then was like, nah, I don't feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> it came out one year after Oryx and Crake. So I mean, it's not like she spent a lot of time on it. Exactly. She was bu- She's busy with other things, but maybe she should have left this one too someone else. I mean, everyone has an off day. Nobody bats a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> they can't all be reversed. <laughs> Although, in fairness, I gotta say, I didn't hugely like the Orcs and Craig trilogy either. I uh, just couldn't really get into it. Yeah. I mean, I love so many of her works. You know, I recently reread The Handmaid's Tale, and it blew me away. Yep. I read it in high school, I think, and I remember liking it and thinking it was great, but it was kind of like, okay, you know, that's so ludicrous and far-fetched, but reading it in 2017, was like, oh my god, <laughs> it's all happening. And one thing that drove me crazy is that the only thing that's a bit different is that they repaint Odysseus as a sort of quasi-villain for the murder of the maids. You know, he's famous for killing all the suitors, but he also kills 12 of uh, Penelope's handmaidens. The idea being they were kind of complicit with the suitors or actively helping them. And this was an opportunity to develop them. But in the Penelope ad, they didn't even have names, let alone characters. So it's kind of like, obviously you care about 12 women being murdered, but basically it's like, why should I care about these? They were further marginalized in the Penelope ad when they could have been characters. They could have been people. Here's a chance to make them into people. Yeah, instead they were still just 12 faceless dolls. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Circe was, um, and I mean, part of that is just length of the book. You know, the Penelope ad is less than 200 pages, Circe's about 400. But it was more like, okay, how did we get to be an immortal being imprisoned on an island? What What is a witch in this context? Why does she turn men into pigs? That sort of thing. What happens to her after Odysseus leaves? Are there any other stories from like myth or popular culture that you'd like to see like filled in? I'm sure there are, but that's the problem with these characters. Half the time you don't even know, you know what I mean? Well, Helen is another obvious example. You know, Helen of Troy, the most beautiful woman in the world, the woman who launched a thousand ships. But how did she feel about that? Mm -hmm. You know, she's always painted as being very vacuous, but, and, you know, vain, but she's also completely a piece of property. She's won in a contest, and you know, then she's stolen by Paris. In some of the tellings, she chooses to leave with Paris. Other tellings, he just took her. You know, what's going on with her? what's her deal? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot probably going into the portraying of her as vacuous, like the fact that a woman can be either beautiful or intelligent, but not both. Or yes, and that's something Margaret Atwood continued in her book, which I found very disappointing. She painted Helen as being very vain, 
and Penelope as being smart and kind of resentful of Helen, but they could, she really could have gone for a more interesting, nuanced friendship there, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I'm speaking as an outsider several thousand years removed and from uh, across a gender barrier, but like if I were a woman in ancient Greece, there would be very few ways for me to exert power and influence. And being an object of male desire might be one of those few ways. Exactly. Yeah. No, very common. And she certainly was, you know, she, I, I mean, it's generally considered that she probably would rather be married to Paris than Agamemnon, but did she want this huge war fought over her? You know, who that's, that doesn't seem likely. Yeah. Not that I know her, obviously. Because nobody's ever presented her to me in a way that I can grow to understand her. Can you remind me who the author of Circe is? Madeline Miller. Yeah, she's famous for her prior book, um, The Song of Achilles, which uh, similarly tells the story of Achilles, not that he's a neglected character. I haven't read The Song of Achilles, but I'd like to now, because like I said, she very much impressed me with Circe. Actually, it was kind of funny. I was in the hospital a few when I was reading it a few months ago. Well, I just started it, and I had a bit of a fright with my pregnancy. Everything was fine, but I had a fright. So I went to the hospital, and I had the book with me. And the doc, I'd been waiting for over an hour to see the doctor after my test results. had been, Like, they'd taken my blood and done some exams and stuff. And the doctor finally comes in and she sees it sitting there and she's like, oh, how is it? I just got it. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I'm like, it's fine. How am I? (laughs) Is my baby okay? (laughs) Oh, God. God. But Madeline Miller has fans, is my point. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. I'm glad that you are okay. And, I mean, that was not great on the doctor's part yeah. but well, she was a I, resident and in fairness i was totally fine so yeah yeah i mean i guess that's the sort of thing where you kind of forget if you're bringing in news oh you're fine you don't have anything to worry about you kind of forget that the person's still on tenterhooks so they don't know that yet like, exactly oh now you're making me think about the books we bring with us at times like that right actually that was something i was thinking we might talk about because for my labor i brought the wrong book what'd you bring i brought a, a uh a fluffy romance mm-hmm. that's very well reviewed. I don't want to mention it because I I didn't finish it and I kind of hated it. But the problem with it was that okay, my first labor had went on for five days, huh. so I was preparing for a long labor. This one actually wasn't. So I'm in I'm in the case room. I'm dilating. Things are happening. And I'm like, this might take a while, so I'll start reading my book. And I was getting to this really steamy sex scene <laughs> when I was like. You know, had my legs up in the stirrups. <laughs> At least sexy possible. <laughs> so while there is definitely a time and a place for a romance, um, not the delivery room. <laughs> Fair. Now I'm just wondering, like, I don't... Comfort reading? Like a, a favorite? I don't know. Like, uh, my favorite books make me cry, so I don't necessarily want that emotional, like, thing added to a situation that's already stressful. Yeah, like, another time I went to the hospital, um, I took Pride and Prejudice. I didn't wind up reading it that time just because I wasn't feeling really well enough. But I think that would probably be a safe one. Yeah. You know, yeah. something something I've read before. So I know it's, you know, it's funny. There's no medical stuff. There's no sex. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> sometimes it's not time for sex in books. I wish I could counter with a, a story of a book that I brought to the hospital, but I've been lucky enough not to have much time in hospitals. And although I have had a couple 
of visits, including one overnight in the last couple of years. They all post-date my break from reading. Mm. So you're not in the habit right now of like grabbing your book as you go? No, I make sure I bring my phone charger. (laughs) It's interesting talking about female characters who are sidelined by the narrative. One of the two books I read since we last talked is a collection of short stories by a Japanese writer, Yukiko Motoya, and it's called the collection is called The Lonesome Bodybuilder, Interesting. which is what made me pick it up. <laughs> I suppose it did. <laughs> because I am that. But, oh, not so lonesome, I hope. Well, you know. I guess it's like the loneliness of the long-distance runner. While you're doing it, you're lonely. Exactly. In fact, the title story is the first one in the collection, and I really think it's not the best foot forward. I read it, and I was like, this is interesting and okay, but it it really resolves itself too neatly. It tells a story of a woman who has a neglectful husband who never notices her, and she's very much a sort of submissive, milquetoast kind of person who's very um, demure and very much puts herself second. And uh, her husband is watching some mixed martial arts and asks her in a kind of confrontational way, would you prefer if my body was like those, you know, gesturing at the sort of muscled fighters? And she's like, no, absolutely not. I prefer like, I prefer you soft. I prefer like a poet. But she sort of gets it in her head that maybe I would like my body to be like that. (laughs) And so she starts training and taking it very seriously. It doesn't change her personality is the thing. And it doesn't, her husband doesn't notice the changes in her body. And it's, uh, it's all kind of very sad. Hmm. Uh, and, and I said I didn't appreciate it because of the way it ended, because it sort of has a nice positive denouement where like, there's a kind of a crisis poem moment, and, and the husband does notice it, and they, they you know, flash forward to, like years later, and she's still like a bulked-up bodybuilder, and he's still like a soft, like non-physical kind of person. So yeah, it, it just reaches this really pleasant denouement where we see their life together after the fact, and like they understand each other better. And she, you know, it, it which is weird that I would say I find a happy ending unsatisfying. It just felt too neat. However, the rest of the stories are all pretty weird, weirder, strange. There's a lot of strange physical forms. The main characters still seem to remain um, women who are um, disregarded or or make themselves small uh, without wanting to, but not seeming to be able to stop themselves from doing it. And they're really interesting. And then you reach the middle point, which is this novella that's called An Exotic Marriage, and it takes up about 90 pages. Most of the stories are about four or five pages long. And I started reading this one, and after about four or five pages, I'm like, this must be near the end. And I realized there were 90 more to go. And I was like, oh. Anyways, and it is a novella, An Exotic Marriage, and it won Japan's highest literary award a couple of years ago. And it's just stunning. It completely steamrolled me in the best kind of a way. Oh, that's fantastic. And it's like... It, it once again we have this title character who is a, a woman who's te- mostly passive and reactive, and and kind of would like to change that, but seems not to be able to. And she notices that herself and her husband are becoming more physically similar; they're starting to look like each other. And it starts off in a kind of a lightly magical realist kind of way, and by the end, it's horrifying. I don't want to give it away, but it is a really creepy creepy so it's kind of i guess what you're if i'm understanding you properly 
the stories are thematically linked in that they are about physical transformation. Physical transformation combined with kind of the ways that people uh, debase themselves or make themselves small and, and the sort of ways that this can manifest in strange physical forms. That's really interesting because, of course, the um, obvious one would be, of course, the prevalence of anorexia amongst women. Yeah. Whereas women literally make themselves tiny. But she's going almost – the author's a she, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's almost like she's going the opposite way with this, with small women making themselves yes, big. but it doesn't fix the problem. Like, they hope it will. But no. It, you know, there's this amazing scene early in the novella that's in the center of the book, An Exotic Marriage – where herself and her husband are walking along, and the husband has a disgusting habit of spitting on the ground, Ugh. and he does it in front of an old woman who gets angry at him for spitting on her yard and starts to chastise him, and he kind of inserts the wife between them, kind of like deal with this, in a, you know, not in not so directly, but yeah. you know, in that sort of way that couples learn to manipulate each other, <laughs> and the the wife tries to. Uh, settle the angry old woman down and she eventually gets up ends up getting on her on her knees and cleaning up the husband's spit and the angry old woman is just just the anger drops and she says in this quiet low voice that isn't even yours because this book has some buzz around it because again like I don't know anything about Japanese literature, really. Uh, and this is really my first time reading contemporary Japanese literature. And it won the highest literary award in Japan. So it's it's a big deal. And once I Googled the author's name after having read it, it's like, okay, yeah, there is some buzz around this. I've just not been paying attention because I'm out of this world now. And um, anyone who picks it up, I, I want to say, like, go to the novella in the middle. Or like, like it, <laughs> it starts off kind of, okay, good, whatever. Uh, but like that's the real firework, and I can understand not wanting to start off with something so strong and then back ending it with some like smaller, shorter, slighter pieces. I can understand why you'd structure a collection this way. But yeah, and they may not have thought the novella would sell in the West if just on its own. Yeah. It's a weird length. Like if you were to publish it on its own, it would be like ninety pages or something. It's uh, novellas are such a weird form because I like them. I like these, you know stories that you tell in 25 or 30,000 words, but they're really in physical form, very difficult to handle. Like, Yeah. I don't think there's a really good market for them. Like, not that I know that much about book marketing, but I feel like I don't want to pay 20 bucks or whatever paperback is now for a 90 pager. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, I guess with e-readers and whatnot, like it is a great length. I read all of this in a local cafe, like all of the novella, in a local cafe, um, and it took me about I don't know two and a half hours or so, and that was it was perfect. It was a perfect way to spend like a Sunday afternoon, and uh, so I think that it, it fits. I mean, I think this is true of short stories as well. I, I kind of feel like short stories should be having a renaissance, and, and maybe they are, but they sort of fit our more fragmented lifestyles now. Where like, oh, I have twenty minutes to read, I'll read a short story, you know. Yeah, I think e-readers e are still often, or e-books are still often being marketed as though they were, as regular books are, and not taking advantage, publishers I don't think yet are taking advantage of the different possibilities this way. You know, if they offered short stories a couple bucks each, and maybe attached like, hey, this is a 20-minuter, or this is an hour-long one, you know, that might be an interesting way to yeah. sell them. 
But yeah, so I, I would strongly recommend Yukiko Motoya. Uh, this is the first fiction that I read without obligation uh, in a long time. And I'm really glad I did. Like, it really, really hit a lot of things that I like. It's weird. It's subtle. It's smart. It is very much focusing on the kinds of characters who don't often take a center stage. Like it's, it's, it makes me think in some ways of like Kafka uh, in that the sort of dehumanization of the modern world is kind of a a theme, but there's, there's a lightness and uh, I don't want to say quirkiness, but that might be the best word that like is absent from Kafka, who is obviously pretty heavy. (laughs) Yeah. It's, It's such a thing when you're coming out of a reading slump. If you have trouble picking a book, which of course you will, because you're usually, you're used to being assigned a book, and then you finally pick one and it's not what you want, you know, it gets very frustrating. This is something I was talking about with my brother while he was visiting, because he is often, he asks me, like, how do you pick books? Where do you find them? And the truth is, I've over the years, I've found a few book blogs I like. BuzzFeed is actually really good for book recommendations, surprisingly enough. Like, I mean, a lot of them are not good. They have a literary editor as well as a community post, but both can be mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of about a year and a half ago when I was like, okay, I've left my PhD and I have not really read fiction for quite some time i should maybe i should read some old favorites maybe some like young adult stuff that i really loved when i was a young adult and i tried to go back to reread from the mixed up files of mrs basilie frank wheeler weiler frank weiler Mm -hmm. uh which i don't know if you're familiar with that no not that one it's it's a young adult book from uh, 1967 was published and um it's about a brother and a sister uh who run away from home and a hide in the museum, uh, in the Met, in the Metropolitan Museum uh, in New York. And they stay there for several weeks. <laughs> they have, they save up money to do this. They, they have a very elaborate plan and they end up getting embroiled in some sort of, um, mystery about a statue and that's, which might be attributed to Michelangelo. They're not sure. Anyways, I loved that when I was a kid and I tried to reread it like as an adult and I was like, I felt so bad because I was bouncing off this book, which is for smart 12-year-olds. And I was like, and I loved it when I was a smart 12-year-old. And I still really appreciate the sense of adventure and independence and intelligence and discovering the world of art and culture on your own without adult supervision that that is in that book. But like, I bounced off it and I felt like an idiot. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, like, what's wrong with me that I can't read this thing? <laughs> I'm not sure why I haven't been able to engage much with young adult fiction. The only young adult book I've read that I've really liked uh, is one called Dumplin'. The names escape me, but uh, it's recently on Netflix, and Dolly Parton wrote nine songs yeah. for the soundtrack. So it's, uh, I highly recommend both that book and movie. But other than that, I haven't had much luck with YA, and I don't know why. Mm. I don't know if there's a point to that. I think the things people like about Young Adult is that it can have a lot of big ideas and a lot of big feelings and also sort of be quicker and easier to digest. I mean, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Style, like question of style is entirely 
subjective, obviously. <laughs> and I do enjoy big honkin' Victorian books. Like, I love you know, Middlemarch, so I clearly don't have a problem with a florid, overwritten kind of style that was more common then. But I really like a clean, simple style best, I think. And that's actually one thing I really like about Matoya. I suppose, I don't know, the, the translator, who is it? Asa Yonida? I think I'm saying that correctly. I hope. Yeah, it's a very, very clean, simple style. Uh, very easy to read. I really appreciate that because the ideas are so strange. Um, and uh, they're put so simply but elegantly. And there are some lovely phrases which just bonk you on the head. Like everyone, my husband and I were talking about Marie Kondo recently. And of course, this business she has of showing gratitude to physical objects. And he made the point that in Japanese culture, animism has been a very important feature. So that probably filters into the reading as well. Who knows why or how culture works? I mean, is there, I'm thinking about Marquez now in 100 Years of Solitude. I know that he basically wanted to write a novel that felt like the stories his grandmother would tell him when he was a child. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we have things like Michael Crummy's Galore, which was basically Newfoundland folklore turned into literature. Oh, this reminds me of a fantastic burn on Jane the Virgin. Yeah? Um, yeah, Jane the Virgin, fantastic show. She's a novelist, or an aspiring novelist in the show. And at one point, there's an episode where she's firing back at a critic. Mm -hmm. One of the lines she said... Um, was that it wasn't fantastical, it was magical realism, and if I were a man, you would compare me to Marquez. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, damn. <laughs> uh, I don't really have much else to say about the book, um, other than the fact that I'm really glad I read it. It's very strange, it's very unsettling in a way that I find uh, exciting. Um yeah, I like I like books that make me feel weird and bad. <laughs> oh, you should read Geek Love then. <laughs> oh, Chris has talked about that. That is a book that will make you feel weird and bad <laughs> in a good way. It has to be in a good way because I I realize this sounds very fussy, but like it, it's entirely possible to feel weird and bad in a bad way, and I don't want that. <laughs> like, oh, of course. No, Geek Love is an incredible book. I can't remember the name of the author, but I imagine Chris has it somewhere around the house. But yeah, it's a it's about a family of yeah of circus freaks to be explicit about it <clears throat> and uh weird and bad things happen <laughs> you're talking about buzzfeed i believe it was on buzzfeed where uh they had a list of like the 100 most challenging novels and uh chris and i have this game where we'll find a list like that and we'll read the blurb but redact any directly identifying information like the name of the author and things like that and see if uh... the other person can guess what they are Oh, that's interesting. And we did that, and I remember Geek Love was on that, and he um he got it pretty much right away. <laughs> There's not a lot of books like Geek no, Love. <laughs> exactly. I might have to give that a shot. That might be the next thing I try because I'm my appetite is now whetted for um things that are strange. So yeah, this this is that. I don't know if I've ever read anything quite like that before or since. Uh, I have been reading Persuasion. Uh, the oh, last really? time I was on a plane, I read about 30 pages of it, and uh, I I learned how on my phone to highlight passages. So <laughs> I highlighted several passages, but I found myself, as we were getting along, it's like, okay, this is clearly, as, from what I've read so far, the title is apt, just, I guess, like, is always the case with Jane Austen. You know, Pride and Prejudice is all about 
one character's pride and the other character's prejudice. Um, persuasion is like, oh my god, everyone has to manage this idiot man-child and like persuade him. <laughs> like he needs to do X, but if we just tell him you need to do X, he won't. So like we need to present the case very carefully and in just the right way so that he'll do the thing that he needs to do. <laughs> Oh, that might be more timely than I wanted it to be. <laughs> it's, it's very much about managing a man who has a lot of power and very little sense. <laughs> so, <sighs> Long-suffering sigh. <laughs> Anyways, um, not to leave it on a bummer note, <laughs> well, hopefully I'll be able to get a book put away so I'll have something to talk about next time. It might be Persuasion. <laughs> yeah. No, I've read, I've read one book since, and I've started another. Nice. So we'll nice. see. Well, you're doing better than me, and you have like a toddler and a baby, and <laughs> yeah, it's become part of like my self care. A lot of times when I uh, collapse into the chair in the five minutes I have, I, I just want to go on my phone. But I've kind of been forcing myself to read at least a couple of pages a day to maintain some sort of non-child rearing identity. Yeah, because my brain—I don't use my brain ever my day-to-day life i'm very much my point is i i actually don't have a lot of stress but what i occupy myself with day-to-day it uses a part of my brain i'm using like the pedagogical part of my brain i'm and the sort of interpersonal part of my brain i'm, I'm training clients and uh i'm sort of paying attention to what they're doing with their bodies and correcting them and moving them through space so obviously i'm thinking but like god i don't use the language part of my brain or the storytelling part of my brain or anything so I miss that. Yeah. Those parts will atrophy. So I'm mostly trying to get my kid to stop licking the TV. <laughs> That's pedagogy. Yeah. And I do read to him the same story about the truck that got stuck <laughs> over and over. <laughs> I could read it to you now. Yeah, we had we to end this. It's a podcast. <laughs> I keep forgetting it's a podcast and not a conversation. <laughs> so thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I hope you had fun chatting with us and or you weren't chatting you were listening but <laughs> damn it listening to us chat <laughs> yes thank you we appreciate it if you'd like to connect with us you can find us on twitter at dear reader fm and uh yeah we'll be back soon with more tales of life and literature 